Welcome to the Positive Education Podcast with Ash Manuel. As we know, the number one hot topic in the world is mental well-being. Ash has worked with close to 1,000 organisations impacting more than a quarter of a million people, including schools, sports teams and businesses across 45 countries. Today, Ash is regarded as a global thought leader in positive education. In this podcast, you'll hear stories, information and actionable ideas from positive education and well-being experts. The purpose of the podcast is so that you take away ideas that you can execute in your classroom, across your school, at your sports club and in your organisation, plus tips and tricks that you can apply in your own life. Hi everyone and welcome to the Positive Education Podcast. My name is Ash Manuel, and today I'm really excited to be talking with the 47th Premier of South Australia, Peter Malinowskis. Now, I really enjoy this conversation because we cover quite a few things, but I was really curious to ask Peter about how he handles certain situations. So I've always been curious, and I know a lot of people are as well, about how people in such high positions of leadership and responsibility go about things. And I was really curious to know how Peter handles his own well-being for a start. He's a father of four kids. He is the Premier of South Australia. I would say he's a very, very busy man. So I just wanted to learn how he handles his own well-being for a start. But also, I was also curious to know about how he handles certain situations, for example, decision-making, how he goes about that, how he thinks about that. And also how he handles criticism. So whether that's a keyboard warrior where they can be quite attacking on social media, whether it's negativity um, through the news and newspapers, how how he handles those situations. Does he take it on board? Does he listen? Doesn't he? So I was really curious to find out about that as well. And also we cover quite a a broad range in a short amount of time. And and one thing I was really curious about is also about his, his parenting, how his wife, Annabelle and him think about parenting, but also I really wanted to ask Peter about how he sees um, schools at the moment in the space of well-being and where he where he sees that, and I guess the direction that he's looking in South Australia, but maybe from a national level as well. And I also was interested to find out about also how he wants his children to grow up. What what sort of society does he want his kids to grow up in as well? So I was really excited to have Peter on and we covered quite a lot in this short, reasonably short episode of just over 30 minutes. And I hope you enjoy it too. Now, just before we do get started, I'd love you for you to um, follow the podcast if you can. So whatever platform you're listening on, um, click the follow so you get the latest um, episodes into your um, podcast app or Spotify, whatever that might be. So you get notified of the latest episodes. And also, it'll help us reach more um, people and hopefully help more people as well, because that's what the aim of the podcast is for. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Peter Malinowskis. And without further ado, we'll get right into it. Peter Malinowskis, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Ash. Mate, um, I'm going to ask you a hard-hitting question first up. Now, oh. recently, <laughs> recently, it was the uh, 2023 AFL draft. And um, you were overlooked. Now, it surprised a lot of people because you are an avid footballer and a football fan and um, you're a leading half 
board or board pocket who are very sought after in the AFL and you're very accurate in front of goal with your two-handed ball drop. So what are your thoughts about being overlooked in the draft? Well, you know, Ash, you've seen me play. So you know all too well that accuracy in front of goal counts for nothing uh, if you don't get the pill in the first place. So, um, and uh, my, over the years, my, my capacity to, to get the footy is, is rapidly diminishing as I become old and slow. But, but nonetheless, notwithstanding the, the, the physical constraints of age, I was, I was disappointed that at the tender age of 43, I was, I was overlooked, particularly by the Port Adelaide Footy Club, who had made overtures and um, to avail I got nowhere. <laughs> no, it's um no, I was, a few people were very surprised, but um, mate, just uh, I guess I really wanted to talk to you uh, about leadership and how you handle things, but also um well being as well, not only for yourself but where you see uh, well being in in schools, and mm. I just really want to ask you about how you handle criticism yourself. So it could be online comments, for example. You, how do you filter these? Do you actually look at them for a start? Um, yeah. how do you handle press and, and things like this so how do you how do you handle those things and I guess even like a comment because I often read through comments um, even like from what you post and it could be a really positive thing but you're always going to have people who attack um, you can't yeah. please everyone so how do you I guess do you value any of these, these suggestions or see them as worthy how do, how do you see it how do you look at it oh, that's a good that's a good question. Um, look, certainly with the role, you um, you know that you can't please everybody and that there's no use trying. And you also know that um, it's a position of leadership that invites criticism. In fact, we actually, you know, governments in, in democracies as, in a way that is a good thing, we, you know, we in, we spend taxpayers' dollars on, on oppositions. Um, so that, and they're, full-time job is to permanently critique the actions of government. Look, I think when it comes to social media, that that is a particularly vitriolic um, environment that uh, sometimes is hard to discern what's, you know, what's criticism that you should take on board and respond to appropriately versus um, what is, you know, people expressing a view that could never be pleased. Um, and trying to trying to draw that line and and distinguish between the two is tricky. I've got to say, I think mm. sometimes social media comments they contain within a, a views that are perfectly legitimate that you should take on board. And particularly if you've got something wrong, and mm. no one's immune from getting a few things wrong, but then you've got to you know make sure that you're not reading every negative comment and taking them to the heart to the extent that it undermines your confidence in a piece of policy that you believe is the right thing to do. And, mm. and that's a balancing act that. That is treacherous, but I, I think though on balance, I, I spent, don't spend too much time looking at social media commentary because it, it, it isn't necessarily always the best representation of the broader public's view. Mm. I think it's a good message for like everyone. Like if we, because we look at social media so much as a society now, it can get us down. Um, and because quite mm. of the, let's be honest, like probably a high percentage of the comments are quite negative or portray something that's probably not realistic and it can get us down. So, yeah. yeah. Look, the, I, sometimes I ask myself, you know, I, I, who, who comments on social media? Like who, who actively goes out of the way to comment on social media? I think there's a, a cohort of people who are 
just inclined to to use it as a vehicle to express their opinion because they are they have them and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But I think the vast majority of people probably aren't inclined. They might be on Facebook but not be inclined to comment. I think it's when you see a an explosion in the number of comments and if you see them all going one way, mm. then that's when you probably think, oh, there's something up here yep. in terms of public sentiment. Um, but like I said, I, it, it, I, social media is a polarising environment and it's you wouldn't want to, you know, use it as your only tool to gauge public opinion on an issue. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I guess um, also decision-making processes. So I'm sure you'll be faced with a number of tough decisions on a regular basis. How, how do you weigh up different factors and perspectives and how do you think um, around decision-making? Like not any particular decision maybe that you make at the moment, just in general, do you have a process that you work through with yeah. decision-making, whether that's policy or um, day-to-day yeah. what you're doing each day? How, does, how do you think about that? So, yeah, it's a good question. Like, so, yeah, in this job, you do have to make decisions on a regular basis. And that's one of the attractions of the job because mm. it's very satisfying if you make a decision that on balance improves the situation or um, assists people. The, 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 I think what's really important to making good decisions is that first you've got to start from a position of that there's, knowing that there's always two sides to a story. Yep. You know, when it comes to public policy making in the, in the modern age, all the low-hanging fruit has been picked. Like, rarely is there a no-brainer. They happen, but they're infrequent. There's always an argument against something. Yeah. I want to hear that argument before I make the call. Mm. Um, the other thing is having multiple sources of, of truth. I think um, sometimes, in, in particularly in public office, if you only rely on the, the bureaucracy advice for the decisions that you make, you're probably doing yourself a disservice. It's important to hear from multiple sources of truth before you can formulate a judgment. Yep. And and I think the most important element, particularly in, you know, senior leadership positions, um, is having some people who you definitively know have no reservations in speaking truth to power. Yep. Um, and that's something that I've found in this job. And I, I don't, you know, I haven't been in it that long, but in the, you know, 20-odd months that I've been doing it, it, it really surprises me that the the office itself sometimes has the influence of, you know, people speaking to you in a more filtered way than what's than when they what's what what otherwise do. Hmm. You want people who have the confidence to say to someone in a position of authority and power that what they believe to be the truth, hmm. rather than telling you what you want to hear. And that's and tough that, to do. That is tough to do. That yep. is really tough to do. And the more powerful the role, the, the greater the degree of reticence from someone to speak truth to power. Mm. So, And so it's incumbent upon the leader to, to create a culture and an environment where they genuinely do welcome um, critique and criticism because otherwise you just won't hear it. Mm. And, and for what I'm hearing there, like that, that comes down to empathy, doesn't it? Like hearing different perspectives, knowing that your view is not the only one and maybe uh, your political party view is not the only one. There's other perspectives yeah. and that that comes down to a lot of like empathetic or empathy um in leadership as well is that yeah is that fair to say? Uh, absolutely and and having a degree of objectivity that being said you know when you're a leader you can't spend all your time sitting on the fence either like mm. you so I, I and i i'm i hate sitting on the fence i'd rather get off it and prosecute an argument but 
But I, I want to do that from a position of knowledge of knowing the downside risk to a particular idea or policy. Mm. So, and, and that hopefully leads to better judgments. That being said, um, you know, you never get them all right. And I can think of a few things that have happened, which I would do differently if I had my time again, but, but that's, you just want to try and learn from that. But, but to answer your core question, I think multiple sources of truth. So you're not just relying upon one source of information and having people that are willing to speak truth to power Mm. in the absence of those things. I think you're, you're more likely to make bad decisions more often. Mm. And, and you that being received that information as well in that high power position, you've got to be open to it as well, don't you? And not, and not necessarily uh, dismiss that person because I'm just thinking like of so many different roles that this could be what that that advice that you just given could be, um, I guess, implemented in like teaching like or sort of school principals, for example. Like mm-hmm. that's a perfect example how I think principals need to be open to listen to their staff, and I think that's a, something to think about absolutely i mean i think it's probably true for all positions of power and Mm. um um and look (laughs) you know to be frank with you ash i mean i can think of occasions in positions of leadership different positions of leadership i've had years ago where i probably wasn't as willing um i I was so when you're so determined and and single-minded and laser focused on a particular outcome yep sometimes you can you you can forget that the pursuit of your own objective could be undermined by not bringing people with you by engaging like that. And, Mm. um, you know, I I can think of occasions in the past where I've made that mistake. So, but it's again, you know, like so many things in life, it's a balance. You've got to be open and engaged to criticism and critique um, and engage people to bring them with you. But ultimately when you do make a decision, um, you know, there are occasions where you've got to say, look, this is the call that I'm making. I'm locked in behind it. I've heard what you have to, had to say, but now you've got to get on board and mm. and move forward. So and knowing when to do what is, you know, sometimes very tricky. Mm, yeah, absolutely. No, really interesting perspective there, Peter. Really appreciate that. And um, I just want to move on to your own well-being. Now, you've been one of the most busiest people, I reckon. I'm not sure. I don't really like the word busy, but you very productive. You've got four kids. Just had your fourth kid. Congratulations on on that. Thanks. And um, <laughs> Premier of South Australia. I'm tipping it's one of the most ugh, packed schedules you could possibly have. How, how do you manage your well being? And do you have any consistent practices that you stick to? Um, look, it is busy and it's intense. And uh, you know, and I'm, I'm not complaining about this because you know what you're signing up for. You know. It's, family does pay a price that's um that is just true um and like i said i'm not complaining about it but i do feel for the you know for annabelle and the kids who pay a price not by their choice but uh but look in terms of me um you know i try having a release is important um the nature of the job is it sort of you're never not in it you're never not um mm. it's always on your mind and and that's okay but doing something physical whatever it is um i do I, is important um to me not not so much for my physical well-being but mentally I, I just even just a half hour run um really clears the head a little bit and 
if I can keep that up, if I keep up a form of physical activity uh, most days, then that that sort of helps. And you know, if I've done an injury or, or got crook and I can't do that, I do I, I notice that it, mm. it my my attitude towards things to sort of does diminish a little bit. So that that's something that I think's important. Us and I try and stick to where I can. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of but the nothing biggest... beats footy. Nothing so, beats footy, you know. Like the yeah. the competitive sport is so much different to going for a run. I reckon yeah. because even when you run, you think. You know, for some people, it might be riding a bike or whatever, but you still think. Yeah. Whereas when you play a competitive sport with teammates, you don't think about anything else apart from the moment, and that yep. that that's probably the only reason why I've tried to keep playing a game every now and then. Yeah, absolutely. And that exercise is a massive thing now. I know for me, met. I exercise personally as well for hundred percent. The reason personally I do is the mental health reasons because it makes yeah. you feel good. And if you do have a bad day, it can shift your mood into a, a more mm-hmm. positive one. And I reckon um, that's one of the things that we should be really teaching young people that physical activity is not only good for our bodies, but it's, it's so good for our minds. What, what do you think about that? And is there, I know uh, on the spot uh, here, but uh, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I do, I do think sometimes that, Sporting programs at a young age lend themselves to um, le- less to kids in- encouraging kids to participate and more to celebrating excellence. Mm. And um, and and we should do that, of course. Um, but you know, I I I wish that I was more. F- I had a greater degree of physical activity in my early twenties, like when I finished school and. Um, I went through a period where I didn't play footy and then I started it again in my sort of when I was 23, 24, that three or four year period. I, I really regret not being far more active than I, than I was. Um, mm. So I look, anyway, I, I completely agree with you. Encouraging young people to participate in some sort of physical activity mm. doesn't have to be in a competitive environment. Yeah. I think it's mission critical to mental health, but also building resilience. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And there's even what recent, I read a book recently and there's actually, it was, that, it was an American book, but research, um, basically research was that um, a school conducted intense physical activity at the start of the day um, and then went straight into the lessons. And the actual academic results were um, improved as well through physical activity. Right? Yeah, there's that side of it as well. And that's one of the things I always, when I go into a school personally, I always push with the students and, well, not push, but explain how physical activity is great. As I said before, great for our bodies, but it's even better for our minds. There's so many... Um, benefits to it. So I reckon that's one thing that we can really do with our schools and starting at a young age is is pushing that benefit of physical activity and getting moving because as um, I'm not sure how, and I'll talk about your uh, parenting in a minute, Pete, but um, I know that society in general, the kids are slowing down in terms of their mm. with gaming and social media. Mm. Used to be. So I think it's really important that we, we can and push it um, there. I, 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 I think there's something to that, absolutely. Hmm. No, absolutely, mate. Now, I want to get on to your, um, your, you've got four kids and how you and your wife, Annabelle, how, how do you think about parenting? And I guess this is a bit of a two-part question. So how do you think about parenting? But also, what do you want your outcomes and skills for your kids what, as they grow up? And I guess make the world a better place. So what sort of environment do you want them to grow up in in, in, in a society? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it, it, look, in terms of parenting, I 
unfairly my wife probably wears more of the burden than I do just because I'm not around as, as much. Mm. Um, but, you know, probably like most parents, you, you just hope that your kids first and foremost are happy mm. and, um, you know, enjoy the, the, the extraordinary privilege that is living. Yeah. Um, but I, what, what is, what is important to me um, as well? And, you know, different families and different parents will have different views about this, but the, the value system that my kids have, I really do hope um, is orientated towards, um, you know, trying to think of others um, more than themselves all the time. Um, I do worry that in, you know, the social media landscape environment, there is a, you know, a, a, almost a righteous individualism that comes through every now and then when on occasions society and um, we would benefit if we just try and think about things from other people's perspectives. Mm. I don't think social media encourages that necessarily all the time. Um, mm. Tends to in, infect outrage to confirm an existing view. Mm. Uh, I just, I just hope that as the kids get older, they they have that capacity to try and think about the experience of others and and you know try and think about how they approach challenges in life might be better off by putting other people first rather than just their own interests. Yeah, absolutely. And do you have any way, I mean, this is probably throwing you under, throwing you under the bus a bit, but hey, what, what's some ways that do you think that we you can actually teach kids that? Not only, I mean, this is, I guess, your own, but also other kids as well, because that's such an well, important value to well, have. Well, I think it's, it's, a bit, it's a bit hard when they're young. I mean, um, my kids are, you know, eight, uh, eight, six, three, just born. Yep. I think with the eight-year-old and six-year-old, they're at an age now where, consciousness of kindness and generosity to others is something that you can start to teach them even in small ways like yep. you know and at home if they're fighting over something trying to encourage you know fighting over the tv remote or who has the last bloody cookie or bloody you know whatever it is <laughs> you're trying to trying to encourage a you know trying to have them appreciate a sense of satisfaction that be that can be drawn from giving someone else that, that a sense of sacrifice, um, but that geez, it's hard though, isn't it? I mean, yeah. you know, I like it's not. It, you know, I I fail at this regularly myself, let alone with other kids. So, mm. for my own kids, so it's tricky. But, but also just to think about the world around them, mm. um, and that perspective of others is, mm. you know, with the eight year old, we're we're trying to do that. But I'm not gonna lie, I, like I said, we probably fail at it regularly, but. But at the same time, you know, at that age, um, it can be tricky anyway. Oh, absolutely, and it's it's a journey. Like it's not it's like a marathon. It's these these skills don't happen overnight. It's just that, I guess that regu that uh, like that marathon journey where it you might not see results today, but over time by modelling and putting these little things in into practice, whether and that's that's not just um that's a combination of parenting and, and at school as well. And over time, these skills come through in their teenage years and into their adulthood, which be you planted the seed at a young age. And I think that's yeah. really important to people just remember. Like, it's it's it takes time and their skills. It, it, 
it's um it's skills that could be developed and practiced, but it does take time. Mate, yeah, I want to keep um moving to um schools. So one of the big topics at the moment is mental health in schools and, and not only schools, but in society. Now, what's your thoughts on going all in on a preventative approach rather than a reactive? Because I think the funding at the moment, now it could be wrong, but I think it's slightly or more, probably a bit more than slightly weighed in the reactive. So oh, no, 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 let's be frank about it. It's in, particularly in mental health. It's yeah. almost entirely yep. skewed towards the reactive. In fact, worse mm. than that is probably at the acute end of reactive. Yeah, I was just trying to be uh, political. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it is. It's it's heavily, as you say, it's heavily weighted in the reactive. Now, I, I just per, from my own personal experience, and this is why I started growing with gratitude, because as an adult, I learned some skills that helped me become a more resilient person. And it has got me through some um, tough times, like we all go through. But what actually happened? I was learning these skills about being grateful, um, kind, empathetic. Um, I call it positive reflection. So thinking about the good things um, and also practicing self-awareness and being responsible through taking ownership and then understanding, well, I need to actually put in the effort to build my, I guess, resilience. And that actually happened um, oh, probably about 2010, I came across this thinking and I was just doing this, literally these practices each each day and it had a really positive impact over time. And it did, as I said before, it didn't help me get through some tough times, but uh, it was more of a preventative action that got mm. me to that. And I, I and, and I feel that through that experience, I think, well, what if we can turn that around and and teach young people, particularly, uh, skills that can help them move forward from challenges, and also teach them the skills about self awareness, about oh, well, maybe I'm not at my best today, but I need to take ownership of that to improve my mood or, or whatever, whatever it might be. Now, obviously, there's always going to be higher levels of um, we're talking about mental health here, higher level, higher levels of mental health that need that, I guess, more serious um, care. But from that, I guess the the lower level, if, if you like, I'm not sure if that's the right terminology, if we can actually put some, I guess, more resources into schools, um, whatever that might look like, and in society mm. as a preventative model. Now, that's a very long sort of introduction, but the question, and I'd love to get your thoughts around that. And I think you seem to... <laughs> be on board with this yeah look conceptually absolutely mm. so the the challenge for policymakers, uh i guess of which one one mm. is how do you take res what are the resources that you're investing and where are they coming from now um in government and this is the real hard part is that if you want to invest more in something you've got to take it from somewhere else to be able to facilitate that yep. unless you start increasing taxes, which, you know, there's not much appetite in the community to do. So yeah. um, now in the, let's take mental health, for instance, someone presents to a hospital with acute mental illness and is, you know, um, you know, might be at the worst end suicidal or whatever. Um, you know, how do you take resources away from that patient mm, exactly. and put them into something that might have a benefit later down the track. The other, the other challenge. So that's the first challenge. The second challenge is, uh, you know, as a society and governments reflect their societies, um, how do you invest in something that is difficult to measure? Now, 
whether it be mental health or, you know, well-being or resilience, all these sort of issues, when you try and invest in preventative measures, mm. very hard um, over a 15-year program, um, and that's really what we're, what we're talking about here, or at least a 12-year program in a school context, yep. how do you know that the investment that you made prevented a mental illness mm. um, when that person may not have been, you know, might not have suffered mental illness in any event? So that that the the long longevity of such a policy requirement and its difficulty to measure undermines the ability to make those investments in a way that I think on one level might be a really good idea. So that that is the that is the conundrum. Mm. It, that now on one level someone might interpret that as an excuse, but when you face that conundrum in the context of the first issue about where you take the resources from, it becomes a very difficult environment. Nonetheless, nonetheless, um, I don't think there's any doubt about the fact that there is a, a necessity towards investing in well-being or resilience more broadly, particularly amongst young people, because with, without that, then we probably are doing ourselves a disservice in terms of how we confront challenges in life more broadly. Mm. Yeah, it's, yeah, and I agree with 100% with what you're saying. It's very hard to measure. Um, I, with some of the programs that um, I've run in school, we've done university um, studies, but the actual, it's really hard to gather the, the data for so many reasons. It, like, for example, like, depending on how the kids feel on the day, like, they, like, when you're doing one of those surveys, they might, I don't know how you rank it, give you, like, something like a, like a five, um, whatever it might be, then the next time you do it as a follow-up, it might be a one kind of thing. Like mm. it's all over the, the place as well. So you definitely understand that the challenges that um, I guess come with like, the preventative model and changing and policy in that way. But it would be so good if somehow we can um, just make some small steps to that preventive model. I know things are happening in schools and obviously this, that's a big debate at the moment with schools and, and teachers um, workloads and things like that. And that's a conversation we could talk about yeah. for ages. And Pete, I'm really conscious of your time and I really appreciate okay. um, your time today. Now, I just got one more question. And you, as you mentioned before, you've been the Premier of South Australia for about well, 20 months now, I believe. Um, yeah. And um, being from South Australia myself, I, I feel that you've done an amazing um, job. You're very, you're a people's person um you are always friendly to people and i guess always open to a conversation and i, I just want to actually ask before actually i've got one two quick questions actually how do you actually think about talk, like communicating talking with people because sometimes personally in social settings i'm quite awkward and and find it hard to actually start conversations so when you meet people whether it's higher powered people or, or people uh, in the community, how do you start conversations or how do you think about that? Because you have so many conversations in a day and do you think sometimes, look, I just don't want to talk, but I know I have to, or is it you're just such a, a social person and um, a person who loves communicating with people? How, how do you think about that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, look, I do enjoy meeting people. Um, people are fascinating. Mm. You know, we, we are we are unique creatures, human beings, and no two people are the same. So, you know, there's, I, I thoroughly enjoy the chance to meet other people and 
if you if you have long enough with anyone, you know, yeah. you, you can take something away from meeting them. The that said, um, sometimes when you're out and about all day and all you're doing is, is talking to people, particularly if you don't get a chance to actually really engage with people, so it's just a a, a series of yeah. short conversations, then yep. you know by the end of the day you sort of um, might get in the car to go on the way home and you just want a moment of pause just to to think or or reflect and that's you know you find yourself looking forward to that or or it being welcome but but you know the, the truth is ash and you know i i work in politics it's a combative environment um well it's not when i say it's combative it, it can be a very combative environment it's it it's you know it, and it can you know it can be very frustrating on occasions but the actual truth be told you know most people are good people you know, I, you know, I I meet some people who I, I really fundamentally disagree with, um, and you know I might not necessarily characterise as a a great human being, but that's the exception. You know, um, most people I meet, including a lot of people that I actively disagree with, they're still fundamentally decent and and just mm. good people. So, um, so you sort of take some heart from that and, and enjoy almost all the conversations you have. But, um, but yeah, so and I, like I said, I, I enjoy it, but I, I appreciate it. it's not necessarily for everyone. Um, <laughs> but that's it. Like I said, when sometimes you get into bed or get in the car, you sort of do look forward to a moment of, of solitude. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I guess that comes with the role, doesn't it? Those conversations. So as you said before, you know what you're getting yourself into. And if, exactly. Um, Enjoying that situation just makes it all the more better. Now, quick question. Who's the most famous person you've ever met? Oh, well, that's a good question. Um, that's an excellent question. I've met, obviously, quite a few prime ministers. They're, yeah. I guess, really famous. Um, uh Oh, I'm trying to think of an international um, type star that I've Rock? met. No, I've never, I never, never met Obama. God, I'd love to. Um, yeah. I, I, I'm a big Obama fan, a big Obama fan. Um, I don't think I've been in the same room as a as a US president or anything. Yeah, like that. Um, that was Choco Williams, the <laughs> that was that was what's that? Sorry, Choco Williams, the uh, premiership. Oh well, mate. Well, look, in terms of Oops. in terms of royalty, in terms <laughs> of royalty, then um, you know, it would be a it would be a it would be Choco or his brother Stephen, who I've met a few times. But um, uh, yeah, so that I'd put that in there. Yeah, Russell Ebert. There we yeah. go. That there's a there's a man, the myth, the legend. Um, yeah. so um. They're, they're in the royalty game. But in terms of the most famous, I, I met Kate Blanchett. She's a pretty oh, yeah. big superstar. Yeah. Absolutely. And, uh, pretty nice lady. So she, we'll put her down as the, the most famous. Oh, excellent. No, brilliant, mate. And one last one. What are, the, what are you most proud of since you've taken over being Premier in South Australia in the last 20 months? What are you most proud of? Something that's probably not talked about that much. We've, we've put a lot of effort into trying to do more for the neurodivergent community in in South Australia, um, particularly young people with autism. Um, yep. And we've got, I mean, we've got so much work to do, but 
there's a really big need there that state governments have around the country really neglected. And uh, we've been able to get some things done that are really nation leading and, and setting the pace on trying to assist families with um, autistic children and, mm. um, and trying to get the state to think a bit differently about people with autism. And I'm, I'm really proud of that because it's a, um, initiative that I've had a bit of an eye on and there's someone doing some good work there in Emily Burke, but oh no, I don't, that one really sticks to, I mean, there's other things too that are far bigger and, um, you know, make a difference yep. that I'm really excited about public housing, mm. much other things, but that, that one's not really talked about very much. And I know it's making a real world difference on the ground, which, um, yeah, that feels good. No, brilliant, mate. That's a, it's a really good thing to be proud of. And, um, yeah, I th- since you in the last twelve months, so much has happened in South Australia. You've certainly, got a lot to be proud of, and mate, that's um, that's brilliant, mate. I really appreciate your Thanks, time mate. and no um, worries, mate. How, so how, 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 how are you going? Are we? I don't know if you're still recording or not, but um, yeah, I am. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how's tricks at your end? Mate, I'm going well, thanks, mate. Yeah, um, growing with gratitude's going really well. We've yeah, um, cool. the latest project we're doing is uh, disaster resilience, which was actually funded by Safecom. Um, yeah, Australian yeah. Fire Emergency Services Commission, and yeah, we did that yeah, yeah. land um, with Makers Empire, which do 3D technology. So we combine 3D technology and well-being to create a pilot project, and that's about disaster resilience. And we actually got uh, Commonwealth funding to extend that over the next three years in South Australia and also into New South Wales. Um, and we'll be looking to roll that out across all states and territories in Australia in the next few years. So that's been a really big focus that disaster resilience area, which we know with well, even the weather in the South Australia in the last couple of days has been well. Terrible. Well, it's also it's also an area that tragically we know is going to grow in terms of now. Oh, absolutely, yep, yep. So that that I project's been helping. It. Yeah. Oh, sorry, mate. Gone. I hate saying it, but it's true. You know. Yeah, oh. it is. And I think what we need to do is again, it's a bit of a I get get on the front foot and help young. Well, this is focused on young people in the communities, but get them to be leaders in that space and get on the front foot to help prepare the best they can. And that's what the project is certainly about, identifying those issues that could come up, um, whether they're in a high-risk area of floods or um, whatever it might be, or fire, whatever, bushfires it could be. So, yeah, just getting them prepared about prepared how they can deal with these situations that could possibly come up, which, fingers crossed, they don't. But as you say, they certainly likely, unfortunately, continue to happen. And, um, and how about on the track? Are you going to be out there next year? Mate, um, no, I'm not sure about. I don't, I don't, I don't have any thought about. It. I um did see uh, a couple of team. I actually saw a freak today, a Ford Pocket. Oh yeah, um, from the team. Where and, was that? Uh, sorry. Where was that? Oh, I was just on only um just in a cafe on King William. Oh yeah. And uh, and also I spoke to Toph, the, and uh, yeah. not not really much about footy, but <laughs> just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, good man in general. Good. Uh, All right, we'll stay in touch. If I can help out with anything, don't hesitate. Drop us a line. Yeah, thanks, Melly. Appreciate it, mate. All right, thanks, mate. Cheers. Bye, mate.